electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. A lot of people are great friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to educate, but to entertain, teach, put it in context. Call me, 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. On the eve of the biggest Federal Reserve meeting in ages, I come to praise Jay Powell, not bury him, unlike virtually everyone else on air. I know this market is incredibly jittery and awful. That I know he won't be able to thread the needle perfectly, but I do have faith in his decisions, and I think the second-guessing at this point is pointless and, at times, demeaning. After the day where the Dow lost 152 points, once again, awful. S&P declined 0.38%. Thank you for nothing. NASDAQ actually inched up 0.18%. Go figure. I want to demonstrate that much of our latest battle of inflation simply isn't the Fed's fault. The way I see it, we had two big rounds of, infl- of inflation. You can blame the first round of the Fed's inaction. Too much bond buying when they should have been selling. Should have taken multiple quarter point moves when employment got so strong. These were mistakes on Powell for certain. And they, they've hurt us. But the second round is all about geopolitics, and it's hitting the whole world, not just America. Let's start with the most obvious, oil and gas prices. Is J-Pal really responsible for the price of the pump? Did J-Pal invade Ukraine? Oil's up because of the sanctions on Russia. Something like 5 million barrels have come off each day. There's tremendous oil hoarding, too. This is hitting every country in the Western world. and There's not much the Fed can do about it, but we still blame Jay. Now, American producers could close some of the shortfall by pumping more aggressively. The technology exists for us to produce 2 million additional barrels a day, which would be enough to move the needle and send your price at the pump down. But the oil companies need more pipeline capacity. Specifically, they need confidence that the U.S. government will support additional infrastructure. Otherwise, they can't get enough product to market to make it worthwhile. I thought there was a chance we could see a deal between the oil companies and the White House, but Biden's got to play to his base, and his base hates the oil industry. Sure enough, just a couple days ago, when I thought things might be closer, the president decided to trash Exxon, laying all the blame for high oil prices and profiteering. Listen to this. Quote, the reason they're not drilling is they're buying back their own stock, which should be taxed, quite frankly, buying back their own stock and making no new investments, end quote. He went on to say, quote, so I always thought the Republicans are investment 
for investment. Exxon, start investing and pay your taxes. Thanks, end quote. Now, I can quibble with many of the details here. For example, Exxon has expanded its drilling budget dramatically this year, albeit off a very low level. Sure, they buy back stock. They've always bought back stock. But they boosted their capital budget by 45%. It's actually up from pre-pandemic levels. And as David Faber, my colleague from Squawk of the Street, who has a big Exxon special coming up on the 22nd, pointed out this very morning, they do pay all of their taxes. But the reason Biden's rhetoric frustrates me to no end is that it's totally unproductive. If he wants cheaper gas prices, he needs the oil industry's help. And he's not given it much reason to cooperate. The real bottleneck here is a lack of refining capacity. And guess what? It's Exxon that is the only company building a new refinery in this country. Imagine how Exxon feels. Not that we should care. I know. But I'm just saying they're doing the opposite of what Biden said. But what does Biden do? Well, he'd rather make a deal with the murderous government of Saudi Arabia, as he has called them. Not the best business partners, but maybe it's easier for him to strong arm the Saudis. Either way, Jay Powell can't solve the war in Ukraine. He can't get more oil out of the ground. He can't make the president more friendly to the fossil fuel complex. And the same goes for the other big source of inflation, food. Normally, our farmers would have, they do pretty well meat and demand. But we got a one-two punch here. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, responsible for 13% of the world's calories. And on top of that, the weather's not playing ball. There's a global food price. Uh, and, of course, it's going to scream higher when you take out all that capacity. In the, in the meantime, we don't have enough staff at our slaughterhouses thanks to COVID. Poor timing all around. And, yes, there will be massive famines in Africa because of Ukraine. I hope we pay attention. Getting the food to the stores next. That requires trucking, and an amazing number of truckers have retired, which, like everything else on this list, could not be predicted. We don't have enough younger truck drivers to take their place because younger people have been told this whole field will be disrupted by autonomous driving. So why go into it? Then there's the packaging. Much of it is oil and gas based. And we know that comes down to Russia, not the Fed. What's fascinating, though, is something that James Quincy, the CEO of Coca-Cola, told me yesterday when they introduced the new Jack and Coke uh, cans on Squawk on the Street. Aluminum sheeting's finally coming down in price, and that will allow the can makers to add capacity, which Quincy thinks will bring costs down. First guy I've heard on air saying costs are going to come down. The lack of new capacity in pretty much everything has kept prices higher than it should be. Even if the Fed had raised interest rates more aggressively, the supply side of the equation wouldn't be any better. Next is everything that goes into the home. The velocity of the work-from-home scenario was pretty shocking. Totally unforeseen. Was Powell supposed to see it? Nobody else did. Given that most of the companies we deal with in our day-to-day life didn't think we'd get a a COVID vaccine so quickly... They cut back on their plans for 2021 and even 2022. They still haven't caught up. Plus, much of the capacity needed to meet all of this demand came from China. We tried to rely on our own supply chain to meet the new demand, but the ports in Southern California, the mainstay, are run by the unions. Notoriously tough, and the whole situation is a mess. It's not Jay's fault that we still use Justin, that we still use that just-in-time inventory and keep very few parts on the shelves waiting to be used. So we didn't have them when we needed them. When it looked like we might have the supply chain fixed and the pandemic under control, a new version of COVID took off. And if you recall, we had no idea whether Omicron would be more or less deadly. Powell chose to wait and see. In retrospect, definitely wrong. But before you consider him obtuse, the Chinese had the same info we had and the same medicines we had. And look at what they've done. They've gone into complete lockdown. How can Jay take that possibility off the table for the U.S. if the Chinese do it? We're so in love with how many great decisions the Chinese make. China is a major supplier of our semiconductors, particularly lower end, but still special chips that are now in short supply. 
Cars and trucks have been hurt the most because there are so many electronic parts in them. Didn't used to be. So new cars and trucks are in short supply, which then forces up the price of used cars. Another key inflation component. All sorts of appliances need these chips, too. So these manufacturers can't produce as much as consumers want, and that causes prices to go up further. All right. Now, in retrospect, the Fed provided way more liquidity than it needed to. It should have stopped buying bonds more than a year ago. It should have been selling bonds in size well before it started raising rates. When Powell saw what was happening, it might have occurred to him that if he could just slow everything down, we might be able to get through this without a real hard landing for the economy. After all, because of the great resignation, we have way too many job openings and not enough people to fill them. I think the great application era will soon be upon us. But beyond selling trillions of bonds to rein in the economy and raising rates to cool down what can be cooled, which isn't much, we've got to stop blaming Powell for all things inflation. There were circumstances beyond his control in the second wave that are affecting every country on Earth. Now he has to hit us with some monster rate hikes to cool things down while selling, I hope, at least $200 billion in bonds a month, twice the current schedule, just to fix a problem not of his own making. The bottom line, it's a tough call. But Powell needs to tighten aggressively at this point, if only just to say, we mean business, whatever business that might be. Jeff in California. Jeff. Hey, Jimmy Chill. We love you here in downtown L.A. Thanks for your hard work. Uh, Man, you're terrific. Thank you. I used to love downtown L.A. What's happening? Yeah, uh, the stock I'm calling about is Roku. Uh, Strong rumors have it that Roku will actually be bought out by Netflix. And if that does happen, obviously we're looking for a 20% rise or more Roku. Also, Roku's in only about 21 countries, so it seems like there's a lot of room for growth uh, in Europe. Uh, Motley Fool says that Roku is currently a cash machine and generating a very solid stream of cash flow and its user base is growing by leaps and bounds. It well, seems like it's a buy, but, but there's mixed mixed reviews. So, Jim, two questions. Two questions. Is it currently a buy, and will it be bought out by Netflix? Well, I don't think it'll be bought by Netflix, and you know, we don't speculate on takeouts here. Uh, a cash machine, no. I mean, they are lucky to make money next year. If they do, they're going to lose money this year. We don't recommend stocks that uh, lose money on man money. It's just too hard. Let's go to Mike in Louisiana. Mike. Hey, Jim. This is Mike from Shreveport. Long-time viewer. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for all you do for us individual investors. Oh, I appreciate it. It's not an easy market, so I really appreciate those words. Thank you. Jim, Jim, I'm going to start a position in one of the three major defense contractors. I'm looking at them all, and all three are relatively equal with regard to price to sales, P.E., leverage, free cash flow, etc. As it stands... I'm focused on Lockheed Martin. Jim, what's your take? I think Lockheed Martin is a terrific stock. You know, we're going to have to do something with Ukraine or the Russians will win. We're now getting that feeling. They're starting to use the same uh, They're using a Chechnya playbook from Putin. 1999-2000 now. Just wipe out everybody. And unfortunately, it is working. Lockheed Martin offers the possibility that we can give them the weapons we need. Jim Takelet is the CEO. We've been on the show a number of times. That is a very good stock. Inexpensive, great cash flow, good dividend. There, it can be done. All right, Pal needs to tighten aggressively at this point. If only just to say we mean business, whatever business that might be. Oh, man, tonight, this is a tough 
horrendous, unforgiving market, especially when it comes to stock discovery. So I'm screening the S&P 500 to see if we can find some high-yielding and high-growth names like we did in 2008. That's what we do. In 2011, we did it. In 2015, we're doing it, and now we're doing it now. Then if this market, you can't afford to make emotional decisions. So I'm turning to the technicals to see what the future could hold for the S&P 500. It's a little dicey. And could Indy Semiconductor be a SPAC that, that bucks the bad news trend? I'm talking to a company, to the company's top brass, and I know you've asked many questions about them. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreated in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From last Thursday through yesterday, we got the worst three-day stretch for the major averages since the COVID crash in March of 2020. Dow plunged 7%, SB pummeled uh, almost 9%. NASDAQ lost more than 10% of its value. I'm telling you, this is a hard market. Horrid. We're worried about inflation. We're worried about how badly the Fed will have to damage the economy in order to stamp out that inflation. We're hearing now it's going to be a crash landing. However, the self has been insanely indiscriminate, taking down the good with the bad. 
In fact, the SME's proprietary oscillator that I've followed for years and years just came in tonight at negative 7.66. Now, anything lower than minus 5 means the market's oversold. Minus 7 is extremely oversold. Whenever I see a reading like this in the oscillator, I know it's time for us to hold our collective noses and do some buying, even if it hurts us this short-term performance. But, of course, you've got to be selective because the market remains horrific. That means picking up the kind of defensive stocks that can hold up just fine, even with inflation and the very real possibility of a Fed-mandated recession. That's got to be one of your criteria. We've searching, we're searching for the proverbial babies that have been thrown out in the bathwater over the last few days and really the last six months. In particular, we want cheap names with good dividend protection and healthy growth. Like I've been saying for months, if you want your portfolio to survive this market, you need to circle the wagons around companies that make real things, who do real stuff at a profit, turn those profits to shareholders, but only if their stocks offer you growth at a reasonable price. Look, I know that's a long litany. I mean, but I, I don't know what else to do. It's a picky market. That's what we have to do here. But we don't want to lose a lot of money while we're waiting for better times, which, when we are this oversold, could happen any single day now. With that in mind, we ran a screen on the S&P 500 with three criteria. First, the average stock in the S&P currently trades at 16.5 times earnings. That's a very important number. The S&P has got its own price earnings multiple, just like stocks, 16.5. So in terms of valuation, what we are looking for are stocks that are cheaper than the average stock, anything less than 16.5 times earnings. As for the S&P components that don't have any earnings, forget about it. We're not even talking about those anymore. You know that we've just shut those down. Second, we want growth. It doesn't have to be huge, but it does have to be positive. Why? Because in a bear market like this one, and we are in a bear market, as I tell you over and over again, there are a lot of stocks that are cheap for good reasons. Their earnings are declining. We call those value traps. We don't want to get near them. So we only want companies that are expected to grow earnings both this year and next year. Third, you need protection from a high dividend yield. When stocks seem to get slaughtered by the day, a big dividend is your best friend. Now, you can quibble about valuation, but companies that pay you literal cash to own their stocks are another story. That's money in your pocket, and it offers real downside protection. Given that the benchmark 10-year Treasury currently yields roughly 3.3%, we only want stocks that yield more than, say, 3.5% or higher. Now, we saw today that anything less than that is now being taken out and shot, too. That's how fast rates have risen. Look at a stock like PepsiCo. Great company. Did nothing wrong. Just doesn't have the yield protection that it used to. Now, once you put it all together, do you know how many stocks there are that actually fit our criteria in the SP 500? Just 23. 23 that pass all three tests. That's a tough, tough market. Now, some of these are better than others. Uh, let me give you the rundown on my 10 favorites of the 23. Now, the first one is you probably might guess if you're a member of the charitable, uh, of, of, of the charitable investing club. Man, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel when we're looking at these. But this is as best as it gets, is Devon Energy. And I talk about Devon all the time. So, I mean, it's probably no surprise, but Devon's one of the highest yielders in the S&P. Based on their payout last quarter, Devon's got a 7.2% yield, so it's more than double what we're looking for, right? Although, in reality, it might be even higher now that energy prices have gotten so high. Remember, they give you a variable dividend. Throw in the fact that these guys recently expanded their buyback by $400 million to $2 billion, and you can see why I still love this one. Most importantly, Devon's stock has now pulled back nine bucks from its last week's highs. So I think it's a gift that these prices we own for the investing club, as I said, put out very good analysis of a recent acquisition just last week. So you can see 
Devin works for us. Second is another energy play, One Oak. They're a really good pipeline company. A lot of natural gas, gas liquids exposure, that's called NGLs, to the Rocky Mountains, Mid-Continent, and Permian Basin regions. We don't have enough pipeline capacity in this country, particularly for natural gas, which is bad news for energy prices, but great news for incumbents like One Oak. Now, this one has a 6.2% yield. I know the people who run the company. It is a very, very solid company. That's a really interesting stock. Third is Verizon. Okay, not run that perfectly right now, but the old joke about Verizon is that you buy it when it gets down to 50 and you sell it when it rises to 60 because it's stuck. It's been in that range for years. Now it's at 49. Yields 5.2%. Even better, the sticky wireless business is exactly the kind of enterprise that should do fine in a Fed-mandated slowdown, solid safety play. And, of course, these companies have been raising rates of late. Fourth is one. I don't get this one at all. This is such a good. We had them one recently. Huntington Bank shares. The Ohio-based regional bank that's trying to take over the Midwest. I've tried recommending this one before. No one's listening. Stock had a 52-week low yesterday. But as the Fed raises interest rates, regional banks like Huntington instantly get more profitable because they can take your deposits and earn a higher return on them. And that's what raising rates is great for banks. But the banks haven't stopped going down because everyone thinks we're going to recession. These guys have a 5.1% yield. When we had them on, I thought they were incredibly solid. This is one we haven't had on for years, Fifth Vici Properties. This is a real estate investment trust that owns gaming, hospitality, entertainment properties, including some iconic casinos in Vegas. You might think it's crazy to buy this kind of stock when we're worried about a recession. But we're also living through the great reopening, and people are desperate to travel again. Unlike the casino companies, it doesn't have any China exposure. It's got a juicy 5.1% yield when they came. Public was around 15 and change. We have them on double fantastic. Okay, now more controversial. Newell Brands. It's a house of consumer brands, including Rubbermaid, Coleman, Mr. Coffee, Sharpie, and many others. This stock has been an absolute dog because everyone's worried about raw cost inflation. But Newell's actual earnings have been strong. Management's very strong. Stock trades at less than 10 times earnings, 5% yield. I think you could be ready to bottom. You know, it's funny. I was looking at Best Buy, too. That's right around 5%. Anything in the consumer aisle, I just hate these days. Now, seventh is IBM, another stock that's hated. Ever since spinning off its slower growth uh, tech infrastructure business later, that's Kindle, IBM has been turning itself around. The last quarter was good. And even after the breakup, they haven't cut the dividend, which is how the stock still yields nearly 5% here and is really despised. It's incredible. And either better than they used to be. Eighth is Cisco Systems. When Cisco reported last month, the numbers were ugly. The stock got killed. But that was all due to the lockdowns in China. It was not due to demand. Even when the lockdowns end, the supply chain problems could persist for a couple quarters. But after that, CEO Chuck Robbins came on our show and is confident about the future. More important, customer orders are mostly just being delayed, not canceled. I like it down here at 13 times earnings, 3.5% yield. Again, it's been an underperformer for the trust. But we do want to own this one long term. We do not run a hedge fund. Number nine, advanced auto parts. This is the only retailer that passed our screen because we've still got a car shortage, meaning people need to spend more on parts to repair their old vehicles. Used cars are too expensive, so they keep trying to repair the old ones, while AutoZone is a better operator. Advanced auto parts has a substantially cheaper stock, 3.5% yield to boot. Plus, they just raised their four-year earnings forecast a few weeks ago. The stock's come down since then, so you're getting that forecast for free. And then finally, another one, you know, fast-growing utility, NRG Energy. Texas-based utility. Been a good year for the utilities. NRG is doing very well, but in recent weeks, the stock's been hit hard as the whole market has rolled over. I think you're getting a good opportunity here to buy something consistent with a 3.5% yield. So the bottom line here, and we've done these, you know, in every bear market, we have done these screens, and they've almost always worked. They don't work the day we put them out. But I've looked back over the 18, 17 years we've done the show, this new year, and I can tell you that these have been 
was so valued by our viewers, but they don't go up tomorrow. Bottom line, when the market comes down so far so fast, you can find genuinely good buying opportunities, but only if you're very, very selective in what you pick. Like these 10 names, which I said will not necessarily go up tomorrow, but you will look back and say, wow, I had a chance to buy them that cheap. I should have taken them. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, it might feel like the dog days of summer have gone year-round. But a key indicator may spell out the near future for the S&P. More next. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. In this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad market, I can't blame anyone for feeling dispirited and wanting to throw in the towel. But when you're managing your own money for the long haul, you can't afford to make emotional decisions like that, especially when that emotion is panic. In the market's darkest moments, I'm always urging you to take your feelings out of the equation. One way to do that is to focus on more quantitative methods of judging the stock market. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner. She's a brilliant technician. who's done. Who, uh, she's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, and she's the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. Now, lately we've been bombarded with bad economic news, as you know. But Garner wants you to remember that markets are forward-looking, not backward-looking. Even if the president is awful, stocks tend to bottom when the fundamentals are at their worst because the averages don't reflect the president. They reflect what we're expecting in the future, say, 6 to 12 months out. Remember, in March of 2020, nearly every industrialized country was totally shut down. Face-to-face commerce was borderline illegal. Most of the workforce was stuck sitting on their couches watching news of the pandemic unfold in horror. But after the market crashed hard, those negatives didn't stop us from bottoming in late March as investors began to look toward the future. The situation was so bad that Wall Street didn't want to admit stocks had already seen their lows. It took a few, it took a few months for the big guys to recognize that the bear market was over. They just couldn't fathom that stocks could go steadily higher when the whole economy was on life support. They would come on TV and endlessly tell us to sell stocks. We've seen what happens when the bulls get complacent over the past six months. They get slaughtered. But Garner says the same thing can happen to complacent bears. So take a look at the daily chart of the S&P 500 June futures contract. In short term, uh, we know that the market is driven by human emotions at the most extreme. And this market is, in particular is as most emotional as it can get. Forget lithium. This market needs some fluorazine. That said, charters can get a read on where volatile markets are likely to change course. And right now, Gardner thinks the S&P 500 is heading for a critical turning point, one that could set the tone for the next months. If you look at what happened during the last terrific breakdown in early May, the S&P dipped below its previous trading range, only to rebound back above that trading range by the end of the month. See that? It was nice. Yet it proved uh, ephemeral. Gardner points out that the S&P wasn't able to hold on above its key floor of 4,030 
after that breakdown last week, the bears took control. And again, we went down practically in a straight line. Then yesterday, the S&P futures broke down below 3,800, which triggered a bunch of stop losses, orders, and ultimately plunged us down to the mid-3,700s. We've now dipped into the floor of support around 3,700 to 3,750 with today's sell-off. But Garner's seeing signs that the S&P 500 might be oversold, not unlike the S oscillator I talk about, meaning it's come down too far too fast and could be ready for a bounce. That's what I'm I'm thinking uh, she's saying. Check out the relative strength index or the RSI. See, that's right here uh, down at the bottom. This is an important momentum indicator. Given that the RSI is currently near 30, that tells Gardner prices are getting oversold. Plus, we started seeing some divergence between this key indicator and the SP 500. While the SP is making lower lows, the RSI is making higher lows. That could mean the sellers are starting to get exhausted. Right there is probably the most positive thing I've seen in this entire page. If the S&P can make a miraculous recovery above 4,030, that, that would be miraculous, believe me, by the end of the week, up roughly 300 points from here, then Garner says we can chalk this whole decline up to a bear trap, something that will likely send the S&P uh, soaring back to the top of its old trading range, around 4,400. But if we don't get that miraculous rebound, if we fail to break out above 4,030, then the bear reigns supreme, and Gartner wouldn't be surprised if the S&P drifts down to its next floor of support, and that's around 3,550 which would be pretty horrible. Worse, she thinks that the longer the index remains stuck here, the heavier it'll get. That's pretty much, a, I think, the conventional wisdom now, but the conventional wisdom is winning. Now, take a look at the S&P's longer-term monthly chart. Once again, Garner believes the 4,000 area is critical because it represents the trend line from the big breakout in late 2020. So you can see what, what's going on, right? The current decline simply takes us back towards 3,500, 3550, I should say. That's the old stealing resistance that's now become a floor of support right there. If the SP can't break out above 4,000 again, or worse, if it stays stuck below 3750 where it is now, Garner says the possibility, the probability of a decline to 3550 becomes extremely high. And that is her bear case. So this is what we would have to expect. That's not that bad, by the way. But, and this is a very big but, if we do get a decline to the 3,500s, she thinks that would be a buying opportunity. Of course, she could be wrong. Julian Emanuel at Evercore recently put out a bear case projection of 2,900. That'd be ugly. Garner doesn't think it'll get that bad, though. So she's actually looking for a chance to buy it, which wouldn't be so wrong, provided that it bounces back. Well, why is she not that all that negative? Because she's lived through these Fed tightening cycles before. The market often manages to go higher after we've gotten used to the Fed's rate hikes. It happened in 2005 and 2006. It happened from 2015 through 2018. On top of that, take a look at the S&P 500 going back to 1990. Oh, wow. Now, we recently learned that Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, MCS, fell below 60 for the first time since the financial crisis. But Garner thinks that's a good sign for the stock market. A reading this bit often means that the worst is already behind us, at least for Wall Street. When you had similar dismal readings going back to the 90s, those moments came at moments when the S&P 500 had already gone through the bulk of its decline. Of course, that same history says it could take weeks or months for the market to rebound from here. But for Garner, these hideous consumer sentiment numbers suggest the S&P is already reaching the tail end of its pullback. So you can see this is we just had the really record breaking number right here. And you can see when we've had bad ones before, they were off in the beginning, the signal that it was time to buy. In the end, Garner thinks we go either way. 
There's a moderate chance of a nice rebound later this week that can stabilize the situation. But she says the more likely outcome is either some stabilization right around here uh, where the S&P is currently trading or a breakdown to 3,500. Again, I don't think that's that bad. At that point, though, she would want you to be a buyer, not a seller, because eventually the bears will run out of firepower and some of the money sitting on the sidelines will come back into the market. This is a bullish scenario, people, versus the one that I just think a lot of people expect, which is this, right? That's, isn't that what most people expect? The bottom line, the charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggest these week, this week could be a key moment for the S&P 500. If we can get a big update, that would turn things around. But without it, she's predicting one last leg down to 3550. At that point, though, she's recommending turning more positive because even the bears can get too complacent. So two positive scenarios out of Garner, even though I know a lot of people feel this thing's headed right to 3200. Gary in California. Gary. Uh, good evening, Jim. Good evening, uh, Gary. I'm calling, I'm calling you because I'm confounded by two stocks in my portfolio. Okay. And I'm hoping you can add some clarity. You'll like the stocks, both of them. They gush money. The first is Pfizer, and the second is Kinder Morton. And we all know that we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars fall into the corporate coffers of Pfizer. But also in the case of Kinder Morgan, we've seen their their primary uh, product, their natural gas, go from $2 and change, uh, looking back uh, maybe a year, year and a half, to now trading at least at $8, up to $9. And this is a quadrupling of their cash flow. Right. In my my investment experience, I've always considered cash flow some kind of an indicator for share price and what it should be. In this instance, both of these companies, well, in the pipeline industry in general, they're saying, you know, it's kind of funny they're moving their money with wheelbarrows. Well, but Gary, look, here's what I'll tell you. Uh, Pfizer is a very inexpensive drug stock, and Kinder Morgan is a very inexpensive pipeline. I like both groups. You were absolutely right. I happen to like Kinder Morgan more because it's got a 6.2% yield. I think that's a terrific stock here because we are indeed running out of pipeline space for all the oil we have found, and we need help from anybody, including KMI. All right, the chart suggests this could be a key moment for the SP. A big update might turn things around. Over that, one last leg down to 35.50, and that's where you'd buy it. There's both bullish scenarios. Much more mad money, including my exclusive with Indy Semiconductor. At which has got LIDAR, autonomous driving, and I'm going to learn more about the tech behind the future of orders with the company's CEO. Then today, Hal Ham announced an offer to acquire the remaining shares of Continental Resources and set the stock flying. So what does this deal mean for you and for the oil bull market? I'll give you my take. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. I seem to say every night, this is a hideous market. But few groups are more hated than stocks that came as SPACs. Those are the startups that came public over the past couple of years by merging with special purpose acquisition companies. Just yesterday, we got the first bankruptcy declaration for one of the many SPAC electric vehicle companies, Electric Last Mile Solutions. It won't be the last. That was really hideous, that one. But some of these names are actually legitimate even if their stocks might be too risky in the current environment. Take Indy Semiconductor, which is working on a suite of chips and software for the auto industry. Think LiDAR, radar, autonomous driving, and advanced driver assistance systems. This stock has come from, 
$16 last November to six and change today. Because Wall Street, I think, has no patience for fast-growing companies that aren't turning a profit. But, man, he semi-reported better than expected quarter last month, and it's got a triple-digit growth rate. While this kind of name is currently out of style in the Wall Street fashion show, it's a real enterprise. So let's find out more about it. So let's take a closer look with, with Donald McClyman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Indie Semiconductor, Dr. Lamore. Mr. McClyman, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Good to see there you. There you go. Have a seat. Yeah. Have a seat. Thanks, sir, for uh, having me. Nice okay. to be here in person this time. It is great. Yeah, yeah. It is great. So you're in the big ones. You're in ADAS, you're in connectivity, and you're in EV. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that that this is a very exciting space, but other than Tesla's, no, but no one seems to be really making a lot of money in it. How can you make money in disruptive auto megatrends now? Well, um, we are um, fairly uh, spread in the market. As you mentioned, we're in the ADAS space, uh, we're in the uh, user experience space, and we're beginning to enter into the e-vehicle space. So, I mean, we're very much a what's-for-launch company. We're really focused on uh, products and projects that can bring us money today. And right. we're, not, we're not talking about things that are coming in, in 10 years' time or uh, sort of autonomous driving, which will come to the market who knows when. Right. We're really looking at things that are going to give us uh, revenue within a very foreseeable amount of time. Now, let's talk about these, um, the acquisitions, what they've done and what they've meant for you, mm. and uh, particularly analog devices, which are really good companies. So they sold something to you. Is it working out? Yeah. I mean, we, we made three acquisitions, um, two in the radar space. We did two carve-outs, uh, one from On Semiconductor. We acquired their RF Mimic team. Okay. And then one uh, from ADI. We acquired their, acquired their software and systems team, both fantastic teams, probably a little subscale inside their own businesses. But that combined with, with a business that we had been building ourselves internally and a technology we'd been building internally enabled us uh, to put the three together in a tripod fashion, kind of. And we attached to one of the biggest design wins in, in the business as, as a net result of that. Tell me some more about the design win, because I want people to understand they're try- we're all trying to figure out how the stock went down. So mm-hmm. it, it's just that if there's good stuff, we want to know about it. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. I mean, um, as I said, we're, we're, uh, we're very much focused on real business. Right. So anything that we talk about publicly, we expect to be really in the, in the kind of fat part of the market where... Uh, they're predictable. They're going into regular vehicles, which you and I can buy today or within a few years. Right. So, um, I mean, really, that's, that's, that's the main focus. Well, you, mean like, uh, you mentioned in your uh, Q&A mm. uh, in the conference call that uh, Apple CarPlay, mm-hmm. that you're involved with that. How are you involved with Apple CarPlay? Well, Apple CarPlay has is, is, is been a long story for us. We started shipping volume production in that in 2015. Um, we just deployed our third generation of that product, which will ship for another 10 years from today. Uh, it's a large piece of business for us. We ship millions of parts every year in that. It's, 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 a, it's a running, solid business in a sort of high-profile area of the, of the user experience market. All right, so let's deal with the numbers. Well, in Mad Money, we don't recommend stocks that don't. That, uh, the criteria is you have to make, make things, do stuff. Uh, be profitable, return mm. money to shareholders, and be reasonably valued. Mm. So that's why it's so hard for me to get behind Indy, because you are supposed to lose money even in 2023. Is there any way that you can make money next year? Well, we'll cross over that barrier in 2023. Um, I, uh, we won't be profitable for the whole year, but we will be profitable at the end of the year. We're very committed to that. It's the number one focus for me as, as, the, as the CEO of the company. And really, if you look at our, our growth profile, we're growing between 16 to 20 percent quarter on quarter. So we're we're marching towards that. And absolutely do, will you have enough uh, money or do you need a fundraise before you get to profitability? I know you have almost a couple hundred in the bank, but it is a tough environment out there. 
No, we're good. Um, we need about 80 million to get to profitability, so we okay. have a 100 million uh, cushion on that. Um, we have no need for operational reasons to go to the market to look for funding. And that's what we're laser-focused on right now. We're building a business which, um, I mean, somehow we have to break out of the SPAC mold yeah. and show what we can do. And I think we're doing it, but we're getting overlooked a little well, bit. By I mean, the I was confused that you say it would take two years to do IPOs. I, I worked in the IPO process. I've done IPOs. Mm. I was in syndic- I'm involved with syndicate. Mm. And it, it never takes two years. So I was trying to figure out, it would have just been so better to just do an IPO. No, by the way, just so you know, no one who's done a SPAC has ever said that they wish they had done an IPO. So you can be in that company, or you can say, yeah, I wish I'd done it, and then we can go further. Well, um, there's, there's a, a great deal of irony in there. Um, if, yeah. If we, if we had crossed the, the, the rule of thumb in a semiconductor company is you get to $100 million run rate, then you can go. So that's what we will be in, in this quarter. We guided to around that run rate. Um, so we'd be, we'd be filing now, and okay. in this market, we'd be stuck on the, on the landing strip waiting to take off. So, well, yeah. yes and no. But I, so where, how far away from we are, we are on autonomous driving? Um, uh, I mean, autonomous driving will will slide slowly into existence. There's not going to be a big bang point in it. But you do raise some good points at the beginning of your call, talking about the number of fatalities worldwide that would be prevented. But it does seem like just from a public relations nightmare, if one person has an accident, it's like it's like a thousand accidents. That's true. Um, they uh, they do get unfairly punished for it. Nobody talks about the thousands of lives that they saved by. Uh, well, how do we change that narrative? I think over time, as people get used to it, and and frankly, as there are more autonomous cars and less non-autonomous cars interacting with autonomous cars, over over time, that will that will become uh, well, become that's more very accepted. true. Yeah. Well, you know, you got a number. We got a number of calls uh, from Lightning Round about your company, and you know, mm. look, I, I, as I said, mm. it's just. In many ways, this market is horrendous. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's very punishing, mm. particularly punishing toward, it was started punishing toward companies that are losing money. Now today it was punishing toward, like, the PepsiCo's of the world. It's sure. just a rolling bear market. We've seen that before. Yeah. But, I mean, look, I mean, I think that you've got great names, great logos, got a really interesting product line. You said you're going to make money next year. What more can you ask for? That's my point of view. We set our plan out in the end of 20, and we're executing it to it pretty much flawlessly, as we said. And, uh as long as I uh, keep keeping my word, then uh, the investors have nothing to worry about. Very good. Okay, that's Donald McClyman, co-founder and CEO of Indie Semiconductor. You've asked many times in the lightning round. Now you've heard it. $6. Memories back into the break. Coming up next. Let's make money together. What do we got? Kramer's bringing the thunder and answering your burning questions in today's edition of The Lightning Round. It is time. So, and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Let's start with Mark in Iowa. Mark. Good evening, Jim. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you. Joyce and I are both club members, and we appreciate all the work you and Jeff do providing market insight. Thank you. The company I'm calling about today has a market cap of about $2.7 billion dollars. However, its recent breakup, which sounded like a good idea, has led to its stock dropping from in the 20s to about $7. Yeah, Mark, it's been a disaster. I have tried. I've talked to Joe multiple times. Uh, I cannot believe that this has worked out as bad as it has. It's one of the worst picks I've had. I thought Joe sounded great when he was on the show, but he brought public this uh, Barcelona at a bad price. The bonds are trading down. He's got to come back on the show. That's the only way to to clear the air. He's got to come back on the show. Let's go to Steven in California. Steven. 
Equinix would be a good stock, but you know what? We're in the situation now where anything that's like just a building with plumbing in it's not doing it for people. Uh, we're gonna have to stay away for now. We just have to. We have to obey the market. Let's go to Frank in New York. Frank. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Thanks, Frank. Sir. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Hey, What's so up? The company. You're welcome. The company's mosaic. It's the symbol M O S. I got stopped out of my position at a loss. My question is. Do I lift my wings and walk away, or do I take another Well, this is a true bear market situation. The P.E., the price earnings multiple, is three bucks. People think that the pricing is going to collapse. There's absolutely no sign that it is going to collapse. But that means you're in a classic tug-of-war here battle, which I find way too hard to win. I cannot recommend buy or sell, because it is at a level that is just right at the precipice of either going back up or going down big. I got to stay away. Let's go to Jack, even though it's very lucrative. Let's go to Jared in Washington. Jared. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome, Jared. Hey, bud. I want to tell you guys the investment club's great, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a tough time right now. We're doing our best. Thank you for recognizing that. Really appreciate it. What's up? But what the gentleman farmer thinks about planting a little cat in Farmland Partners, FBI. I like Farmland Partners. I mean, I think the people, you know, it kind of fits the zeitgeist. I know zeitgeist shouldn't necessarily be a determinant of anything. But, you know, it's, it's profitable. It just is very, very expensive. And that's the problem. It's got a very high P.E. Let's go to John in New York. John. Hey, Jim. Hey. I'm calling you from the banks of the mighty Niagara River. Can't beat that. <laughs> you bet. I'm looking at a stock that looks like it's going off the falls, but it's a play on the travel corporate uh, travel industry, and it's Saber Corporation, S-A-B-R. What's your thoughts? Well, you know, it's a really interesting Israeli company, but once again, I find myself loath to recommend something that is not making money. And I know that it just is like such a bummer that I'm so cut and dried, but I've got to be cut and dried in this bear market. I just have to. And, uh, and that's the way I feel about it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. With a market this horrendous, it's easy to overlook anything positive. But believe it or not, there are real positives out there. Take this morning's news about how Harold Hamm, the founder of Continental Resources, wants to buy the 17% of the company he doesn't already own and take it private at $70 a share. I've known Harold for a dozen years, and I'm sure he's serious. Sometimes it can be wrong. I mean, he was too bullish on oil uh, prices after crude went into free fall in 2014. But there were many other moments when he picked the right time and place to explore. He's one of the guys who's pioneered the fracking business, which is how he became a billionaire. So if he wants to take Continental Resources private here, I think it's a big deal. Plus, the stock's already trading well above the bid price, meaning there are likely other potential buyers for Continental's properties. Why would Ham want to double down now? The usual cynic said this must be some side of the top uh, because, well, he's been wrong before. But I beg to differ. We're releasing a million barrels a day out of the strategic petroleum reserve, and it's barely keeping a little of the price of crude. We can't do that forever. 
Second, we know that Russia isn't sending the oil to Europe, so they'll have to get it somewhere else. Even if the Russians can win in Ukraine, the sanctions won't go away. Third, huge swaths of China are locked down. When they go back to normal, their demand for oil will go way up. Fourth, OPEC seems to have a problem boosting production. I think Harold wants Continental's cash flow, which is gigantic. He doesn't want to share it with others. He doesn't have to. Same goes for Rick Moncrief over at Devon Energy, which was the stock we own for the Chapel Trust I mentioned earlier. I met Rick through Harold when he was the head of operations and resource development at Continental. Just this week, Rick signed a deal to buy the leasehold and related assets of Rimrock Oil and Gas. That's a privately held concern. Because of the monstrous cash flow, it will be immediately additive to Devon's earnings. That's what we want. I think it's incredible. But so is this entire oil move, which continues to elude people. Yesterday, when oil came down, many commentators pounced on the oil rally and then immediately said it was dead, pronounced it dead. Today, when natural gas tumbled 15 percent on news that we'll be exporting less because of an explosion at an LNG facility, I heard the same thing. I disagree. The oil stocks used to make up more than 10 percent of the SP 500 not that long ago. Until they fell to 2% during the financial crisis, oil's weighting has since doubled. But given that these companies are paying outrageously large dividends, and many of them become much more profitable due to reduced drilling, I think they deserve higher valuations. This market only likes companies that make stuff and do things at a profit, and even then, only if their stocks sell at a reasonable valuation and return capital shareholders. No group fits that profile better than the oils. They can go straight up and then pull back. But when they come down, you got to buy one. Previously, I was worried that President Biden might strike a deal with the industry in order to boost production, lower prices at the pump. But Biden's recent comments that Exxon made more money than God shows that he's not trying to be diplomatic there. And without that, there's no reason for the oil companies to cut into their profitability by raising production. As long as they give you that cash flow, as long as smart guys like Ham want to take their own companies private, I think oil remains in bull market mode and the oil stocks make for great buys on any kind of pullback. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. Probably try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 